you can learn a lot about a person by what they pray for and who they pray for and how they pray for them. And this prayer is found in the third chapter of a letter which he wrote from prison, the letter of the Ephesians. And uh, I will begin reading um, uh, at verse 8. To me, the very least, this is uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentile fathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which from ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulation on your behalf, for they are for your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. And now let us worship God with our gifts. And we have a very special guest with us this morning. George Beverly Shea, uh, whom I jacked on the way to the airport, and he is going to sing for us at this time, and Tom Starwalt, our pianist, will come. Good morning, friends. It's good to be with you. I was on my way to the airport, both went on an airplane at 5 after 11, but it's nice to worship with you. Indeed it is. Some of us have just returned from... Uh, Sheffield, England. We had a very precious mission there with Mr. Graham preaching for eight nights. It was so nice to have Ruth Graham with us and sitting with the side of her husband several evenings. In fact, she spoke very briefly and eloquently on one of the evenings. Uh, God gave a wonderful victory there as he did a year ago in the three months we had been there. In Sheffield, it was once again a football stadium. And each evening, 1,800, 2,400 would respond to the invitation. On Friday night, there were 47,000 there. And when he gave the very gentle 
tender invitation with no music for quite a while. There were 6,085 who walked forward, mostly young people. And 68% of those were first-time decisions. Our hearts were greatly melted and moved. God answered prayer. This fine pastor of yours has asked me to sing a familiar song, The Love of God, written by F.M. Lehman many, many years ago, a man who was pastor of several small churches, supplementing his income by working in, on farms and cheese factories. He used the last verse was already written by someone else, but he was so inspired by it that he wrote this. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate your help. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill, or were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Oh, love of God, how rich, how pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints. The angels' song. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing we have already had in song, for the blessing by the happy associations that come to our minds when we come to worship. We thank you for the witness of a Christian family in presenting their little one for the seal of your covenant of grace. We thank you also, Father, for the opportunity that we have in the presence of the sacred symbols that are before us today uh, to consider the great strength that you bring to our minds and hearts through that love which works for us not only salvation, for life after this life is finished, but salvation from those day things that burden us down. 
and because we love the Savior, and because we want others to know and to share in His love too, we bring these gifts, praying that the Holy Spirit will superintend their use, and that they may bring glory and honor to His name. And now make the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts to be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Let me say in the very beginning what has been printed in the bulletin this morning. If you have personally trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if so, then on the authority of God's Word you have eternal life. If not, you can do so right now, right at the very beginning of a sermon. The Bible says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's in Romans 10, 13. Through prayer, you talk to God. You tell Him that you would like to trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. This makes it personal. And nothing can be more personal than Jesus dying for you. He died for you personally. The Christian life is personal. It's a relationship to the person of Jesus Christ. And you can invite Jesus Christ into your heart and life right now. You can pray to God. And there's a little prayer given in the bulletin for you to follow. Now then, having said that, I want to speak a little bit this morning about encouragement and communion. This comes to my mind when we read this remarkable prayer, and I said in a moment, a moment ago that when you come to uh, Stutterson's prayers, you can learn a lot about him, about what he prays for. day before yesterday, I went over to a conference center near here and got out of the truck, uh, the vehicle I was in, and a young man spied me, and he, could, he thought he knew who I was at first, and then he came and embraced me. And we hugged. His name is Scott Brinkerhoff. Three weeks ago, his wife, Jill North Brinkerhoff, who worked in our church here for a long time with our senior high fellowship, is 32. He has two little children, Nathan and Peter, and she has cancer of the brain. And she has had surgery for it, but it's the kind of cancer that they can't get all at one time. And the prognosis medically is not very bright. He knew that I felt for him, and so he hugged me in order to receive strength from me as a Christian brother. He knew there were people in our church who were... All of us pray for each other in times of crisis. In fact, it sometimes takes hardship to make us stop and really think and pray. I have a book in my library called In the Presence of Mine Enemies. And it's a book by a man by the name of Howard Rutley. He was a United States Air Force pilot. And he was shot down over North Vietnam early in the Vietnam War. He spent years in captivity. And in his book, telling about much of the horror that they went through, he reflected on something that will help you to think about the meaning of communion today and the gift of God's encouragement and salvation that are symbolized here. 
Let me read you his words. During those longer periods of enforced reflection, it became so much easier to separate the important from the trivial, the worthwhile from the waste. For example, in the past, I usually worked or played hard on Sundays, and I had no time for church. For years, Phyllis, his wife, had encouraged me to join the family at worship. She never nagged or scolded, she just kept hoping. But I was too busy, too preoccupied to spend one or two short hours a week thinking about the really important things of life. Now, in this dreadful place, the sights and sounds and smells of death were all about me. My hunger for spiritual food soon did my, outdid my desire to eat a steak again. Now I wanted to know about that part of me that would never die. Now I wanted to talk about God and Christ in the church. But in Heartbreak Hotel, that's what they call the prison. Solitary con There was no pastor, no Sunday school teacher, no Bible, no hymn book, no community of believers to guide and sustain me. I had completely neglected the spiritual dimension of my life. And it took prison to show me how empty life is without God. We can become so distracted by things and so preoccupied with the moment that until we're up against it with some catastrophe, we often do not stop to really think about God and about the meaning of life. Paul knew all of this. And he knew that even for people who professed the faith in Christ, as these Ephesian Christians did, to whom he writes from prison, and it's one of the marks of Paul's letters, that those letters that come to the Philippians and to the Ephesians from his prison are loaded with encouragement and cheer. First and Second Timothy are filled with it. So see the kinds of words that he writes to them. He who is chained to a Roman soldier speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ. That being united to Christ is such a powerful motivation for his life that the hardships of that prison are not the things which have taken him away from God or limited his service, but rather he claims that he will use even this as a springboard to get out the gospel. He talks to them about the mystery of God from all the ages, that before the creation of the world, God was calling out unto himself a people, and that he has been permitted to be a steward, a messenger of the plan of God. Do you feel as though God had you in mind before the creation of the world and that God thinks about you as an individual today? We think about God intensely when everything else is stripped away. But we ought to think about him now in the presence of the Lord's table and to think about the provision he has made for our salvation 
and for our union to Him. He speaks of the manifold wisdom of God, how it might be made known through the church. Whenever the church gets away from that message of preaching to people about their personal relationship to God in Christ, it fumbles the ball terribly. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the angels desire to look into the mystery of the love of God which has been conveyed to us. Then he goes on to say that this was in, e in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Then he speaks to these people. He is in prison. He's chained. And in a moment when he's going to say, I bow my knees to the Lord Jesus, when he bowed down, he pulled a Roman soldier down with him. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart, not to lose heart at my tribulation. Scott Brinkeroff was saying to me that we are not to lose heart in the midst of the tribulation that he goes through with his little ones and his family. We Christians are to help one another. We are not to lose heart. That's the gift of encouragement. And the encouragement comes that if God loved us like this, won't he love us enough to see us through the other things that come to us in life? If you sat down and took out a list and wrote down the numbers of people who encouraged you in your life, what would you write down? How would you point it out? It's not just the people who sympathize with you. Sympathy can sometimes really weaken you. But it's the people, the word for encouragement in the New Testament, by the way, as I was saying this to our prayer meeting group on Wednesday night, is the word parakaleo in Greek, para. And kaleo means call, to walk alongside. As an attorney, when I'm confused and sitting in court, if my attorney stands up, he is my advocate to speak on my behalf when I'm trembling and afraid and don't know what to say. He is to represent me. When Jesus walked alongside those two dispirited disciples on the road to Emmaus, who were brokenhearted because all their dreams had been shattered, and he reminded them that Christ was to suffer and to endure these things so that they might be saved, their hearts were cheered up. They were encouraged because God's truth was creating hope and energy within them. The other day I read about one of the marathon races where a, a runner who had run for 24 miles but was crumbling just before he got to the finish line. Two other runners came alongside him, and both of them encouraged him on so that he could go to the end of the finish line. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes alongside. He encourages our heart, and he leads us, not just in a sympathy, but in a disciplined faith. He makes us go on. 
He doesn't pick us like a little flower and put us under a glass bell so that nothing will ever buffet us or hit us again. No, he comes to make us grow strong. And that's what Paul is speaking of here. When I think of encouragement, he tells these people, lose heart. Don't lose heart because you're going to remember what God has done for you. When Jesus, in the night in which the Lord's Supper was instituted, spoke to his apostles, he said, as the Father has sent me into the world, even so send I you into the world. You are going to carry out my work. Others are going to believe in me and in the plan of God because of you. Now that gives us a job to do. My congregation knows well, and I apologize to them for repeating this part of it, that when I was in high school, I played for a great football coach whose name was Raymond Berry Sr. His son, Raymond Berry Jr., is now the coach of the New England Patriots and made the Hall of Fame as a receiver for the Baltimore Colts. Well, Coach Berry who stayed in town in Texas until he retired, and he's still alive up in his 80s now. And I can remember him so well how he could fire us up for a ball game. And I remember coming to the football field. It didn't make any difference about whether your father was a banker or whether you had a big car or a little car. He didn't care anything about that. What he wanted was what you gave him when you got on that field. And if there was someone else out there and you wanted to take his job and you were good enough to get it, you got it. There was no discrimination. And I admired him for that. I admired him very much for it because I wanted to put out and I wanted to get ahead. I was smaller in size and I wasn't as fast as I wanted to be, but I, I was the first one to get to the ball field in the afternoon. I was the last one to leave. We didn't even own a car. I ran all the way to the football field and ran all the way home when it was over with. And, you know, he rewarded that. He watched it. And I, when I was trying to break into the starting lineup, I can remember how I used to, he used to drift to where you would almost drop in your track. But I knew something good would happen. And to me, the sweetest words in the English language was, Sin Thielman in. <laughs> I was, I was on the bench, and I remember so well getting my helmet and staying close where he could get a good view of me. <laughs> but he knew that I wanted in that ball game. And when he said that, he couldn't get the words out of, off his lips. I was already halfway onto the ball field by that time. They used to tease me and say that if I ran as fast on the ball field as I ran getting out there and coming off, I would really be a great star. Uh, but I wanted in that game. You see, that's the gift of encouragement. But it's not the encouragement that doesn't use you. It's the encouragement that trusts you in a hard and difficult situation, that they want you, and he puts you in. And this is what Jesus does here. Now, what does Paul say in his prayer when he is told not to lose heart? For this reason, I'm going to pray for you, he says. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is, derives its name. And what does he pray for? 
What do you pray for when you pray for your children? Do you ever pray that they will grow spiritually? Do you pray for your pastor, your friends? He prays that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened. He prays for them to have strength, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That's a tremendous way to pray for a fellow Christian. That's what I pray for you this morning, that as the result of coming to this service today, that you will be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in the inner man. That you'll go away from here knowing that you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ with a determination to live for His glory. He continues his prayer, so that Christ may dwell in your heart. The word there for dwell is not a motel room. The word dwell there is to take up residence in your heart. I'm fishing for a little trap. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home by Boyd Munger, who was for years the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley, California. He gave this one Sunday night at a service in the First Presbyterian Church there. It was transcribed and put into tract form, and thousands and thousands and thousands of these have been given away. When I was a boy in college, I went on the campus of Baylor University. I heard a layman get up, and he said, I am not a preacher, but I have a good memory, and I have memorized a tract called My Heart, Christ's Home. And he gave this tract from memory. It made such an impression on me that my life has never been the same from that day to this. And he got it from this verse right here, that Christ may settle down and be at home in your heart. That he's not just passing through, not spending the night there, but that he lives in your house. That he has access to the hall closet, to the playroom, to the library, to the kitchen where your appetites are, to all of the places there, that he is master in the house of your heart. That Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, and that you being rooted, this is an illustration from horticulture or botany. Last week I read about a a fir tree in California. This is at the 2,000 foot level on Mount Shasta. And this tree has, is a very astonishing tree. It's a red fir. And they say that it can take winds that blow up to 100 miles an hour that sweep through those crags and canyons. That the snowpacks come to a depth of 30 feet to where just the tops of them stick up. That when the wind blows, that tree can bend over so that it is lying flat on the ground, but it'll come back up. You know why? It's got a taproot that goes down as far as the top goes up. It's rooted, and the winds won't blow it away. 
Are you rooted in Christ so that when the storms of life are raging, you won't blow away? So that when trouble comes, you've got the resiliency to give and to come back because you're rooted. God's plan of salvation for you. He says, grounded in love. That's a, an architectural word. When they were building this building over here, they had to spend thousands of dollars taking soil samples to see if the soil could stand a heavy structure on that spot. And then they had to dig down deep and put footings, because if you're going to go up high, you've got to go down deep. And it's the same in the Christian faith. So that we may be able to comprehend, that is to have an understanding with all the saints, what is the bread? How broad is the love of Christ? How far will it reach? Bev sung about it a moment ago. Reaches to the highest star. Reaches to the lowest hell. The length, height, and depth. That's the love of, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. It's beyond knowledge. Even Paul is impoverished. He can't think of the right words to make it come out any clearer than this. The Holy Spirit has to do that. And then as we come to communion, we take little elements. Something you can taste. Something you can see. Something you handle. And God says, just as real as you touch it, taste it, and see it, my son died on the cross for you. Sin is no joke. Forsake it and live for my son. Get in with the plan that was made from all eternity. Don't you dare take this supper if you don't love Jesus Christ and intend to live for him. If you do, then you are welcome. If you're repentant of your sin and you belong to him, if you want him to your heart in life, he'll do it right here at this table. And you will be identified with him. And he will encourage your heart in it. This tells us of the cross. Ian Thomas tells how he was watching a BBC telecast of the Olympics in England. And they were showing the Olympic divers. And there was a schoolmaster from a certain section of England who had trained rigorously to, for the diving from the highest platform. And he was a tremendous diver. And they watched him on... Uh, Ian Thomas said he watched him on the camera on BBC, and he said when he came out, he walked over and put his toe in to see if to put his toe into the water in the pool. Then he went around and he started up to the first platform and the second platform and the third platform, and then he executed this perfect dive and came into the water with scarcely a splash. Everyone gasped at the perfection of it, and then they all applauded. And then they have these TV people who come over with the camera when he got out of the thing and got his breath. 
And uh, this BBC sportscaster said, uh, you know, I saw you. Did you put your foot in that water when you came up? And he said, yes, I did. And he said, why on earth did you do that? And the man said, well, this will sound a little strange, but if you want to, I'll tell you the story. He said, I'm a schoolmaster, and I live in a section of England where it's sultry and hot in the summer. And the best time to practice my diving was at night. And he said, I used to come to our Olympic pool at the university, but I came in at night. And he said, one night I came in on a bright moonlit night late. And he said, I climbed the tower. I went up to the first tower, the second tower, the third tower. He said, I got ready to execute my dive. And he said, I came out to the end of the board, and I raised up my arms, and I looked down. And he said, the moon made the shadow of a cross on the pool below me. And he said it gave me such an eerie feeling that I dropped my arms and stood back for a moment. And then he said, I got my composure, and I came back up and looked down to the pool again, and I stretched out my arms and got ready. But he said, there was that cross again. And he said, a strange feeling came over me. And he said, I came down from the platform. I didn't feel right. And he said, I came down from the third platform to the second to the first, and I walked over and looked in the pool, and there was no water. It had been drained that day. He said, had I dived, I would have been killed. But the shadow of the cross saved me. The cross can save us all. And that's what he speaks of here, is this love of God, which is demonstrated by length, breadth, depth, and height, and which is shown to us in the cross. Let us sing the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and in your own heart you can ask Christ to be your Lord. And now let us all return thanks. Our Heavenly Father, we give thee thanks and praise that upon us who are unworthy and who have broken our vows before, that thou hast once again renewed us at your table. We thank you for this bread which signified unto us the broken body of our Savior and makes us know that just as really as that body was broken for us, so really are our sins forgiven through him. And that this fruit of the vine speaks to us of the blood of the everlasting covenant made to bring us the benefit of the forgiveness of our damnable sins. And that by your Holy Spirit, through these precious symbols, you have renewed our fellowship with thy Son, Jesus Christ, and nourished our souls. Now also grant us grace that we, never being unmindful of these things, 
but having them engraven upon our hearts, may advance and grow in the knowledge and the love of Christ until we come into the fullness of God. We thank you that our Lord Jesus is the fullness of God. Help us to follow him. In his name we thank you.